Hey, are you ready to grow your business? You have checked out the number one resource for business leaders, entrepreneurs, startup founders, and managers. And we're going to teach you how to grow and scale your business with real actionable steps. There's no fluff in this podcast. It's just good advice. Check out this episode. If you're a first-time listener, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And if you enjoy this episode, leave us a five-star review. Today's episode is with Alan Payne, who is the author of the book, Built to Fail. We're talking today about his history as one of the last franchise owners of a Blockbuster video store and getting his inside scoop on exactly why did Blockbuster, which was the most incredible video rental store at its time, go from being so well-known to now one of the most well-cited examples of business failure in today's market. Check out this episode. You're going to really love his insights. Stay tuned. Here comes your good advice. Hey, thanks for checking out another episode of the Good Advice Podcast. Bringing you some more good advice today. And I got to tell you, today's episode, I'm probably more excited about today's episode than an episode I've done in any near time experience that I've had recently. Today, we have Alan Payne on the podcast. And if you don't know who Alan is, Alan's the author of a book called Built to Fail. And it's the inside story of Blockbuster's inevitable bust. You've heard me talk on the podcast about Blockbuster. In fact, if you go to pretty much any business seminar or anywhere that people are learning about the do's and don'ts of business, Blockbuster and Netflix eventually get brought up. Well, today I'm bringing you a different perspective. It's not like the cliche conversation on Blockbuster. It's from someone who's actually, they were in the business. They were actually running their own Blockbuster store. And Alan is here today to bring his own perspective so that we can learn from it and hopefully avoid it as we're growing our own businesses. Alan, so excited to have you here today. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, tell us a little bit. I mean, I, I don't even know where to start. I mean, I feel like I'm, I feel like, you know, this is, we're peeling back a really important layer. Uh, go ahead and tell the audience a little bit about your background, if you don't mind. Uh, you know, I got into the business uh, way back in the 80s when it was first starting. In fact, uh, I was working for a company called HUB that is a, uh, for grocery people that have not company. lived in Texas, they're not sure who that is, but it's but they're the biggest grocery company in the in the state of Texas. It's a privately owned company that does twenty seven billion dollars a year in sales. Hmm. The, they they dominate every market they're in, uh, and the only reason they don't dominate Dallas right now is because they're not there, but they're getting ready to move in. But every other market in Texas, they dominate. Uh, back in nineteen eighty six, when I was working for them, HUB decided to get into the video business. And most grocery companies back then did because it was becoming just kind of an expected service for a supermarket to have uh, to have video rentals in the store. Of course, back then it was VHS. It was cassettes. It was, uh, you know, played in a VCR. DVD had not didn't exist yet. But HEB took it a step further and decided to open up freestanding video stores that competed against Blockbuster. Uh, and they looked very much like a blockbuster, that, but the business model was completely different. 
And at the time, to put this in perspective, Blockbuster had about 50 stores. Uh, they had just been bought by Wayne Heisinger and they were just starting to, to, to ramp up. Uh, we, we went at the business completely different and competed very, very successfully against Blockbuster. And that's how I, I, I was put in charge of running those stores. And that's how I got into the business. I, I wasn't the classic entrepreneur who mortgaged my house to get into to the video <laughs> business. You know, I, I got into it by a corporation asking me to go run stores to mm -hmm. compete with Blockbuster. So I learned the business from a completely different perspective. And then about seven years into it, HEB decided they wanted to get to, to focus totally on the supermarket business. So they decided to sell those stores and they sold them to none other than Hollywood video, which was also a very small company at the time, which had only about 10 to 15 stores. Uh, just by coincidence, I was called by a Blockbuster franchise group that was struggling a little bit and asked me to come run their company. So that's when I joined Blockbuster. I became a, a franchisee in 1993. At the time, Blockbuster had about 3,000 stores and had, and by that time had, had really kind of taken over the industry. Now, they only had about 20% market share at the time, but there was no question that they were the leader and they were the only ones that had a national presence in the business. So that's how I got started in the business. And then uh, about seven years into that, just to jump forward to, to put it all in context, I'd been running those stores for a company called Prime Video that was a cable television company. They're the ones that owned them. And uh, I got an opportunity to buy those stores from them in 2000. So I put together $16 million, which I'd never done anything like that in my life before, try to raise money and bought the stores in 2000, which uh, was about the time that Blockbuster was really starting to have some difficulties. Hmm. So I, did, I became an owner very early on, very late after all the big money, easy money got made in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> Perfect so timing. Maybe that's why I scratched <laughs> and clawed so much to survive. Yeah. So, so walk us back to, it's the year 2000. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that's kind of the time where, um, things started to change a little bit. Uh, and, and obviously no business at the time realizes, Hey, we're headed towards, you know, bankruptcy or, or, um, no longer being relevant, but tell, tell me a little bit about what was that year like, or what did the following years look like that really kind of cemented uh, blockbusters fate? You got to step back just a little bit to 1997 and that 1997 is a transformative year because that is the year that DVDs were introduced. Uh, and it, it, cha it completely changed the business because DVDs were, were VHS cassettes. Most of them were sold to video stores for $60, $70. Uh, it, and, and it, that created what we call back then a rental window for the, for the stores. Uh, so we got, we got movies several months before mass merchants got them. When DVD was introduced, that not only was it a more convenient, much uh, a far superior format, but it was sold directly to the consumer for 15 to $20, which effectively eliminated the, 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 the rental window. They were available in Walmart the same day they were available at, 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 uh, at Blockbuster for rent. Uh, also that same year is the year that Netflix was founded. 
by Reed Hastings and Mark Randolph. Uh, that, of course, gave rise to Netflix's buy mail business. That, but the interesting thing is, Blockbuster was in financial difficulty that same year in 1997. In fact, the, the, uh, John Antioca, who joined the company that very same year uh, and was the CEO of Blockbuster for 10 years, uh, had to convince people that, the, that Blockbuster was not going to fail. That's how much difficulty Blockbuster was already in financially. And this was before Netflix was even a factor. Hmm. So uh, what, by, what, by, go, go ahead. What, what was it that was, because I mean, I was way too young, so I don't remember any of this. Yeah. What, what, what was it that, that had shaped public opinion to be um, uh, short on Blockbuster to think that, it, to, to have to be reassured? I mean, what, they have 3,000 stores. I mean, they, they, it was a combination of, now Blockbuster, and I'm sorry, but we got to step back and kind of put this in context of who founded Blockbuster. Uh, Wayne, Wayne Heising had not found Blockbuster, but he bought it so early on that he's considered the founder. Uh, Wayne Heising also founded Waste Management, which is still the largest trash company in the world. He also founded AutoNation after he left Blockbuster, which is still the largest car dealership in the country. Uh, along with Blockbuster, he's the only person to ever found three Fortune 500 companies. Hmm. So if there ever was a classic, you know, genius entrepreneur who recognized opportunity, it was Wayne Heisinger. Wayne Heisinger also owned the Miami Dolphins. He owned the Florida Marlins. Uh, uh, he died uh, about three years ago. Uh, but he was the classic entrepreneur that could spot opportunity and just seize it. And he, he grew things mainly by acquisition, not necessarily organically. You know, he, he, he bought things. Uh, he, Wayne and his crew were the people that most had most influence over him. They just weren't very interested in the inner workings of a, of a video store. And they had they had seized an opportunity back in the '80s of a of an industry that was already a three or four billion dollar industry, but had been founded primarily by entrepreneurs who were undercapitalized. Many of them had not run businesses before. The video business kind of got a strange start because because the studios tried to shut them down before they even got started because they believed that the VCRs were illegal. Hmm. And that and that and that and the video rental store should be shut down. So it didn't attract the business. Did not attract the traditional uh, corporate retail uh, companies. So enter Heisinger, who saw this opportunity of this huge industry that was that was growing at the time, but it wasn't all that well run. So he he put the money together and the team together to ramp it up inc incredibly fast. So he, 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 he built a huge company, but one, which when I got involved with it in 1993, it was pretty obvious that they didn't really know that much about what they were doing. And, and it's, it, it's kind of a lesson you can be to me, you can be very, very successful by spotting opportunity uh, instead of running a good business. I mean, they, they, they jumped on the opportunity, but when competition came along, which happened through, the, through Hollywood video in the mid-1990s, 
Hollywood Video ramped up to a thousand stores in just a few years. That along with Blockbuster kind of hitting a wall on same store sales growth and overbuilding. Uh, they had 3,000 stores by 1993. They had five or 6,000 stores by the late 90s. They had doubled the size of the, of the store base, yet the industry had not doubled and would, ne- and would never double. It was basically flat at that point. So they were adding all this, this built-in cost structure into an industry that was not growing. Uh, and their business model was beginning to be attacked by, by people like Hollywood Video that, were ta- that was take, taking market share from them. So before, before there was any transformation in, in, in where people got their movies, Blockbuster was already in trouble. So it's it's the late '90s. It's or the year 2000. There's this lack of security around Blockbuster's future. What happened next? Well, uh, the 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 great story that most people have probably heard by now is that in 2000, Netflix had grown so fast that they were running out of money. They already they had already raised 100 million dollars. Reed Hastings had was, was, had stepped in as CEO. He had fa- he had founded it with his with his own money, and then raised a lot more. But they they had they had built a company that that had that was starting to transform so many things. They they had introduced subscription, and that's what that's what led Netflix to take off. And, and we got to remember that this is DVD by mail. This is years and years before streaming was even, even started. There was not enough internet bandwidth back then to do it. So Netflix starts as a, as a DVD by mail business. And, and they're up to only 250,000 subscribers. They're very early in the, in the, in, in their, in their growth. and, but they're running out of money. So they come to Blockbuster looking to sell the business to Blockbuster and the price is $50 million. I don't think that was for the entire company, but was, it, was, it was for controlling interest. Reed Hastings is sitting in a room in Dallas in Blockbuster's headquarters offering to sell Blockbuster Netflix for $50 million and go to work for them along with his entire team. And his proposal was that Netflix, his people would run the buy mail business, Blockbuster would run the store business, and everything would be beautiful. Blockbuster just assumed that Netflix was yet another uh, one of the dot-com failures of the day, which is the reason Netflix couldn't raise any more money because of the dot-com bust. And uh, they just, without, so without studying the business and really understanding it, they just said no. Hmm. Uh, so, so, Hastings and Mark Randolph get back on a plane to fly back to California. They lay off about 30% of their staff because they, they don't have the money to keep it going as, as they were running it. And two years later, they, they, they do an IPO. The company's valued at $80 million, I believe it was. And uh, no, it was valued at $200 million, I think. And, and, and they raised $80 million. And uh, kind of the rest is history. And Blockbuster didn't decide to get into the buy mail business and, and for another four or five years. So all that time frame, Netflix is ramping up. Blockbuster is ignoring them. 
and and actually doing things that are making uh, Netflix's growth trajectory easier by the way they're running their stores. And uh, that's when that, that's when Blockbuster really starts to go into a tailspin. Now, when when you were running your stores, um, I'm assuming you, you at the time you can probably remember hearing about Netflix. Was there ever like a thought, you know, you're running these stores, were you ever thinking like, man, we should really do that or, or, or well, as a franchise, we couldn't do it. We couldn't yeah, do okay. it. You know, uh, you know, we, we had a, fr- we had a, fr- a lot, a franchise agreement to run stores. That's all we could do. So, uh, but I always thought like, thought that we had, you know, where Netflix had it, had their advantages. So did we. Uh, Netflix could not compete on new releases, which was a, which was you know at the time a huge part, obviously a huge part of the business, uh, because of the because a, a new release, the life of a new release is only two or three weeks. It's it's got to be it's got to it's got to turn a lot of times to turn a profit. Netflix determined very early on that they couldn't compete in the new release business. And in fact, if you read Mark Randolph's book. Very early on, they determined that the only way they could succeed was to get people to rent older movies. So, uh, just because of the economics of trying to rent new ones. Uh, so, Blockbuster had it, th- th- that was one of our advantages. The disadvantages that we had is that Netflix had virtually everything that had been, pro- that had been produced on, on DVD. Uh, so, in our stores, what we did is we 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 used the lower cost of DVD to in, to improve the availability of new releases. So we had a clear advantage on Netflix there. On the on the on the older movie side of it, what we called catalog back then, is uh, we didn't have everything that Netflix had, but we had everything our customers asked for. If they came in on one of our stores in Alaska or in Texas, where we we had we had about fifty stores. If they came into one of our stores and asked for a movie, we got it. And so there was really no reason for a customer to go to Netflix other than the convenience of, of it coming to them in the mail. So, and what we learned is that, yeah, we did lose some customers to Netflix, but we gained more than we lost. All through those years that Blockbuster was declining, we were growing. Hmm. And we really do believe it was because we had taken advantage of, 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 a, of a Netflix weakness and we had minimized the strength that they had, uh, which, was, which was, you know, this huge selection of, of movies that you could get uh, online. So, Well, so walk me through that, though, because you, know, you mentioned there was this advantage there, but yet we know how the story, how the story ends. And that's that, you know, Netflix became sort of like this and it's it's now lost some steam in the form of we have so many other alternatives with Hulu yeah. and Disney Plus and all these other things. But I mean, in the early I guess 2010s, it was it was literally synonymous with streaming at home, watching movies. And we know how Blockbuster stories ends. What what prevented Blockbuster from pivoting or changing their business model or you know clawing back in some way? Because um, it. And from my perspective, it almost feels like this, just this slow decline into basically bankruptcy. Help me walk through that, that back half of Well, it gets, it gets, it gets complicated, but, but I think the one thing that's important to remember is that 
Blockbuster and the and the store based video rental business was always much much bigger than the buy mail business. It's not like Netflix discovered something hmm. uh, that that uh, that just replaced people going to stores. That did not happen. Uh, when when Netflix started streaming movies in two thousand seven, which really began began the transformation. They were still a. They were obviously a very significant player in the DVD rental business, but they were still much smaller <clears throat> than the store-based business. But they had used that knowledge that they gained from mailing people DVDs, primarily old titles, which was something Blockbuster never understood. They used that knowledge to transform the business into streaming, uh, and by the time we get to two thousand ten. Uh, which is three years after they started streaming, they had built a business in streaming that was relatively significant. It was really starting to grow. That also is the year the Blockbuster filed bankruptcy. But that's not what caused Blockbuster to file bankruptcy. They were, they were in decline long before Netflix started streaming. So my belief is that you know, Netflix used what they learned in really only six or seven years of of, rent, of renting DVDs and, and shipping them through the mail. They used that knowledge to transform to streaming. So, yeah, Blockbuster, which was a much larger company, had a much longer track record in, in renting things to people. But they had not built up the, the the understanding of customers to make that make that leap to what the next format was going to be. That's what Netflix did, and I believe it's because Netflix the the people there, and we knew some of them. You know, we knew Ted Sarandos, who is the CEO of Netflix now, was in the was in the video rental business back in those days, and uh, before he joined Netflix in two thousand. Uh, these people were passionate about the business and they really enjoyed it. They were movie buffs. They, 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 they knew that they had to do it differently if they were going to beat Blockbuster. And I think within just a few years, they knew more about what customers wanted to watch than Blockbuster did. And that's, and that's how they, they, they led them to streaming. And in those early days of streaming, it was a it was a it was a novelty. It, it was an archaic business. I mean, you couldn't watch it on your television. There was no way to move it to get it to your TV. You would watch it on a, on a, on a, on your computer screen primarily because think about it. The iPhone came also was introduced the same year that that Netflix started streaming. We didn't have mobile devices to watch the video on. So the, when Netflix starts streaming, it's, it's kind of an archaic backward business that people are watching on their computers and they didn't have much good content either. Yeah, it was re- just, it was, a, it was just yeah. a novelty. Uh, it only had and, certain titles. Yeah. It was yeah. Like certain things that were available to stream. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and really uh, the, the great story that's in the book is, is that the studios didn't take them seriously either. So they licensed Netflix a massive amount of content through through stars and, and epics. It was about sixty percent of all the catalog product, and they licensed to Netflix for for just a paltry amount. It was thirty million dollars and two hundred million dollars a year, which sounds like a lot of money, but for what they were getting, it was it was very cheap. That's what made Netflix a legitimate streaming company. 
And, and the only reason the studios did it is because they didn't think, they didn't think Netflix was a legitimate competitor. Hmm. And uh, it, w- it, w- it might have been the biggest mistake the Hollywood studios ever made because from that point forward, Netflix kind of rewrote the rules of, right. of what home entertainment was all about. So tying it back to what you said towards the start of our conversation, and, and there's some great insights here on, you know, being passionate about your industry, you know, really seeking out customer feedback and knowing what your customers really want. Does, did the blockbuster executive team, is it, is it what you said earlier that they were sort of more interested in this idea of an industry that was scalable, uh, you know, the opportunity that was there rather than really drilling into the business. Cause, cause you, you see these, these things happen where you have to wonder how does the, basically the Titanic of an industry miss the opportunity to innovate. And, and there's been similar conversations made about, um, uh, Uber and Lyft and how the auto industry didn't who, the, auto, the auto industry, which should have known customer behavior years ago, didn't see the opportunity to innovate here. And then we even have other stu- uh, other conversations like um, Kodak, who again knew the business better than anyone, and yet didn't pivot, didn't innovate. Why didn't Blockbuster seize that opportunity to really drill in, learn from their customers, and allow the business to evolve? I wish I knew the answer of why, because <laughs> I, I, I don't. Uh, all I can do is, you know, relate what I saw and and the fact that it was very difficult to get a blockbuster executive to even talk about the business. Hmm. They just were not interested in it. It was, it was, it was, when, how many more stores are we going to open? Uh that was that was about what other you know that was about the only thing they ever talked about and i let me give you one example and i don't know i don't know you know what caused kodak to miss things but here here's a good example of blockbuster when i got there in 1993 it was it was in my opinion it was very very important to understand what the breakdown of of what was renting in the store was you know and, and in those days it was it was it was it was the new releases on the wall. If you remember going into a blockbuster, there was all the new releases on the wall, and there was all the catalog on the floor. Uh, the first thing I wanted to know, because it was real important to get the mix of the rents prop right uh, through price and inventory. Those had to be managed in detail. We had learned how to do that at HEB, which and the grocery business was much much more complicated than the rental than the video business ever was. So one of the things I I looked for when I got to Blockbusters, okay, I want to know how, what the how, how much the comedy on the on the on the on the floor is renting, how much is drama renting, how much is horror renting. They couldn't tell you. They could not tell you. There was there was not a report in the Blockbuster computer system that would tell me how many rents the comedy section was generating in a Blockbuster store. They could not do it. Hmm. So we, we had to come up with ways to work around that to even understand how the inventory was performing in our stores. Now, from their perspective, they knew enough about it. From my perspective, we, were, we, we didn't know anywhere near enough about it to manage the inventory right. They never changed. That, ne- that never changed throughout the history of Blockbuster. If you were to ask a Blockbuster executive how, much, how, how many rents the product on the floor was generating 
they did not know. So there's no telling how deep that goes into, you know, other areas of the business that I, that I never saw. But to me, that was the best example of a company that they were so successful for the first decade of just every time they opened a store, it was another $250,000 in cash flow. And they just kept adding to it, adding, adding to it and adding to it. And they never stopped to think about exactly, okay, how does this whole thing work? And what happens when a competitor opens up across the street? How are we going to compete? They really didn't know how. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they never learned it. So it, it was, it, and, 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 it, and it got to their, they didn't really understand the business they were running. Here's another example. Uh, Blockbuster had more data on the viewing habits of people on, in movies than anybody in the history of the world. Because if, if you think about it, everything that rented, they knew who it was, where they lived, what gender they were, how old they were. And then, as you know, you can take that, and if you've got the, the, got the address of people, you can dig down into the de- demographics of that area. You, know, you can understand everything about what people are watching and why. They had all of that. They had much more than any studio ever did. But, but every time the business pivoted to something else, they, they didn't see it coming. Somebody else saw it before they did. So all of that information that they had, all that data that they had, uh, they just didn't have the passion and the, and the, the want to, okay, why are people watching what they're watching and how can we learn from that and take advantage of that and protect ourselves against the inevitable competitor to come? They just didn't have an interest in it. I wish I knew why, but, but they didn't. Maybe it was ego. I don't know. But it's, <sighs> well, it's... in some cases, I think it was just sheer laziness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, that, but it, it's, it, it, it was, it was so, diametrically opposed to the way I learned business in the grocery industry, which is just, you know, relentlessly competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're, and you always live in fear that somebody's going to figure something else bef- out before you do. And Blockbuster never had that mentality. Wow. It's pretty incredible because I guess as, as an entrepreneur, you assume that these massive businesses are, I mean, it's the smartest person in the room. I mean, they're just total geniuses when it comes to business and, and not, not discounting anyone who was involved in Blockbuster's growth and trajectory and all that stuff. But then you hear stories like that and it really rubs against some of the basics of business, like knowing your customers, knowing who they are. And maybe it's, and maybe I'm biased in the, in the sense that data is so much more commonplace today and it's so much more easily accessible, but it's, it's pretty surprising to hear just the lack of attention towards, um, especially data that they had on hand. I mean, it's pretty incredible to think about, um, Something it, else it, ma- it makes you wonder what's going on. And like I had the, I, you know, I was in a position where I could see a lot of this because we were running the same business they were running. So every time they would launch a program, they would want us to participate. So they would have to tell us all the background of how they got to what they were doing. So we got a pretty good, uh, the franchise community got a pretty good understanding as to, as to what drove their thinking. And, 
And in our case, you know, I rarely did they come out with a with some sort of decision where they were reacting to com- competition that made any sense to me. Hmm. And uh, so it, it does make you wonder when you when you you just assume that people that have risen to that level in an organization that have had this massive success, you just assume that they know what they're doing and you should be following them instead of the other way around. But in the case of Blockbuster, had I followed them and done what they were doing, I would have been out of business 10 years before we actually were out of business. So, uh, and, you know, I talked to them a lot during those years. And a lot of times they would attribute to the markets that we were in. But that was that was a very, very small part of it. They they never made any attempt to try any of the things that we were doing in our stores and and really didn't even study it. You know, what that last comment reminds me of is Rubbermaid, which was another company that was um, a leader in its industry, eventually went bankrupt and was bought out by Newell. And as I've read it, I think it's actually mentioned in the book, uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins, but he points out how the executives at Rubbermaid basically say, um, you know, it's Walmart's fault. It's our vendor's fault. It's these other people who've really positioned us poorly. But then when you went and asked the customers, they said things like, oh, they are always, you know, the product isn't what it used to be. They're always late in shipping it. It's never here on yeah. time. And that difference, that disconnect is something that sounds a bit familiar with what you're telling me uh, about Blockbuster. Oh, exactly. In fact, in fact, uh, as things were starting to get really bad around 2004, I tell the story in the book about how what they told us is that they were no longer relevant. And and I'm thinking, you know, okay, you're in a business where it's still totally driven by the rental of DVD. Uh, and you're telling me that you're not relevant anymore. And it was almost like, uh, ex- it was, it was, it was an excuse, you know, to me, that's how I heard it. I, because the, the, the fundamental mistakes that were made that created their situation they would all, they they would never own up to it. Mm. Uh, they would always deflect it and blame it on something out of their control. And what, so, anytime I hear a CEO in an industry that I don't know much about uh, attributing, you know, company failures to things out of their control, I'm immediately skeptical. Mm. And I know That's that happens. Advice. I know that happens. Yeah. But 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 in many cases, and I know in the case of Blockbuster. Uh, all the Wall Street analysts that were following Blockbuster, and there were a lot of them, uh, they didn't understand it well enough to understand what was going on. They didn't understand that even though Blockbuster sales would be relatively flat in some years, that the reason they were flat is because prices had been raised, but fewer customers were going in the stores. We could see all that. So we knew that if customer traffic dropped 10% in a year, but they managed to, to keep sales flat because they were raising prices or doing something else, this was a recipe for disaster. And it's, and it's going to catch up with you at some point. There was nobody on Wall Street that looked at it in that level of detail. So Blockbuster could continue to say things that to placate analysts while we could see under the hood at what was really going on in the stores and the, and the, and the, and the customer traffic was just eroding year after year after year after year. Well, and I, I want to 
ask you something about that too. Uh, so a, a data point that I've heard, and I want to know if it's actually true or not, is that the late fee part of the business was incredibly profitable. And so you have someone like Netflix who comes on the scene who says, you know, you it's subscription-based first of all, but it's also keep the DVD as long as you want. And I remember getting a DVD being like, I can really, I can just keep this as long as I want. Um, you just don't get another one until you send it back. And I've heard stories, and again, I don't know how true they are, but I've heard stories of people inside a Blockbuster really wanting to rework the late fee model, really want to move away from the late fee model, but it was so profitable that executives were resistant to change that element of the business, ultimately to the detriment of customers no longer wanting to shop there because they were so frustrated by, oh my gosh, I have another late fee. Well, let me ask you this. If you go rent a car from Avis... Do you think you could just keep it for a month and not have to pay anything when you take it back? No. Uh, it's the same thing with anything that's rented. Uh, as, 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 as much as late fees have been criticized, that was the, the method we used because we never figured out any other way to do it uh, to get people to bring movies back on time. Because if they didn't, as I tell it in the, in the book, a rental business is kind of unique in that the customer actually becomes part of the supply chain. Uh, you know, we've seen all kinds of issues with supply chain breaking down during, during COVID. Well, in the, in the video rental business, the customers were an integral part of the supply chain. They had to play their role. They couldn't take a DVD and keep it for a month and, and there not be some sort of, of penalty for that because they took that product out of the chain. So late fees, like it or not, uh, in the absence of some other way to get people to bring them back, and there were some other ways, but, uh, but they, they were never you know, really exploited. But that was how we kept, how we kept our supply chain intact. Uh, our company never stopped charging late fees, and we lasted longer than anybody except the last store in Bend, in fact, we bought some stores in 2006 from a franchisee that had eliminated late fees. We came in, brought late fees back, got inventories back intact, and sales went up 25%. So, uh, and, pro and profits more than tripled. So, uh, yeah, late fees, it, late fees were absolutely an important part of the business, and they were a very profitable part of the business. But the, but the reason they were there is to keep the supply chain intact. And when Blockbuster did away with them in 2005, that really was kind of the end of the business because mm. they, they, they lost complete control of their inventory and they never recovered. And I believed that when they did it, that it was going to kill the business. And it did. It, it took out almost $300 million in cash flow from the company that never came back. And that was almost the entire profit of the company at the time. So going to, you know, the company declaring bankruptcy in 2010, talk to me a little bit about you as a franchise owner. What, I mean, was this a stressful time in your life? Was this, I mean, how did you stay positive? I mean, what did that well, look like? Well, it was a very stressful time because we're also two years into the great recession at the time. You know, that came on in 2008 and that hurt the business more than anything that had ever happened to the video rental business. And that was unusual because we had weathered a lot of recessions in the past, but that one was different. Uh, 
we lost the industry in general lost about 20% of, of sales just almost overnight and it never came back. Uh, and on top of that blockbuster is filing bankruptcy. Uh, and it was bought by dish dish network for $300 million, which is a far cry from the 8.4 billion that uh, Viacom had paid for it. Uh, just uh, about 15 years before. So, yeah, we, but the thing is our business was still very strong. We'd only closed like two or three stores by the time when Blockbuster had filed bankruptcy in 2010, we'd only closed a couple of stores. Uh, and even though sales had fallen, uh, we were still fine. The, the question was, were we going to be able to reverse the decline? And although we slowed it down, we never were able to reverse it. Now, a lot of, that had to do with a whole lot of factors. That had to do with Netflix streaming. Mm -hmm. It had to do with the recession that persisted for a while. Uh, and it had to do with all the bad press that we got from our parent company, Blockbuster. I mean, Blockbuster was widely regarded as the, as the failure of, mm -hmm. of, of, of home entertainment at the time. Yet that was our, our banner on our stores. So, you know, we were, we were fighting that. But, you know, we lasted another eight years beyond that. And we closed a store or two every year leading up to 2018 and finally closed the last store then. Hmm. And uh, any secrets to staying motivated despite all? I mean, I can't even imagine what it must have been going through your head. I mean, how you even show up to work every day. I mean, you know, we, us, the reason I ask this question is because many of us right now, it's not, it's not anything like what you experienced with Blockbuster, but many of us, our, our industries have been incredibly disrupted yeah. because of COVID. And there's many of us who feel the, um, I mean, I'm thinking about hospitality and restaurant, oh, yeah. feeling the, this sense of um, gloom and doom towards the sustainability and future of our business and yet still having to show up every day, show up for your team, you know, still get out there and try to make, make money. Um, well, how did I, know, you I, I know in our case, you could either throw in the towel or fight it out. And uh, you know, when you're in a, in a retail business, you've got a lot of, of, of lease li liabilities, I mean, you've either got to kind of scrape and claw and try to make the best of it or just file bankruptcy and quit. So that, that's your option. <laughs> uh, so what we did is we scrapped and clawed and found, and found ways to survive. Uh, we had a much better business to work with and try to do that than Blockbuster did because the way we'd run it all those years. Uh, but you know, and I, I didn't really give up and think, okay, this is it until probably 2015, maybe 16, when it was, uh, it was like, okay, we, I think we still had about 15 stores open at the time. And, uh, it was about that time that I kind of went, yeah, we, we shouldn't spend any more money trying to save this. Let's just, and I was very upfront with the people still in the company. You know, we still had several hundred employees. So it was like, okay, uh, we're not going to invest anymore in trying to save this. We're going to try to make the best of it for as long as we possibly can and, and see how long we can, 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 can make this run. Mm -hmm. But uh, in our case, it was like, you don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. Either make the best of it or, or quit. 
so we made the best of it. Well, and I appreciate your perspective on, um, again, it's so easy, I think, to fall into um, this sense of we're victims, you know, the market is controlling us rather than realizing um, Simon Sinek had a really great soundbite uh, at the start of COVID and not discounting how how challenging or horrendous COVID has been, but just basically said, hey, yeah, this is happening and something will happen next year and something will happen the year after that. And either either you deal with it and move forward or, you know, you just, I don't know. Well, it, it, I said in the book, when times get bad, rely on fundamentals. Uh, and to me, uh, if, you, if you don't know your business intimately, you don't know what to do in times like that. Mm. Uh, I mean, we went through all kinds of difficult times, you know, for, for a lot of, a lot of the time I was a franchisee, you know, it was, it was one challenge after another, largely because of what Blockbuster was doing. Uh, but you, th- there's no way to know how to react to it unless you're really, really intimately involved in your business and understand where you can tweak things, uh, and, and how to keep your people motivated. I mean, that was a huge issue during all those times of, you know, we would have to, as blockbusters going down, we're trying to convince our managers that, that uh, okay, we're not doing what they're doing. We're doing this and here's why. So we were spending all this energy trying to convince people that, that we had better answers than they did. And, you know, over time they had learned that in most cases we were right and blockbuster was wrong and that enabled us to survive. But, uh, we think that we did, and I hope that a lot of people out there that are going through the COVID challenges right now, if you look sometime, somewhere down the road, you'll look back at it and go, yeah, we probably did our best work during that time. And I think that's what, how we felt is that a few years into it, we were going, damn, we, we did really, really good to survive this. Mm. And we should be proud of that. And, uh, and I, and we were, you know, I, I, I get, a, I get emotional thinking about it now because there was some really tough times in there that we just knuckled down. We knew, we knew what the business was about. We, we found the answers that we could find. We tried to control what we could control and not try to control things that were out of our control and just t- totally focus on running a better business. And, uh, you know, I, I think we did a lot of our best work during that time when we were challenged. It's pretty incredible, Alan. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time today. Alan, you have given us such a unique and incredible perspective. For people who are listening, what's next for them? How can they follow you? How can they find out more from you? What does that look like? Well, the, the, the book gives, you know, it's called Built to Fail. It came out a few months, a few weeks ago, and it, and it you know, much to my surprise, shot right to an Amazon bestseller. So it's doing really well. I've heard a lot of great things from people in and out in and out of the industry about the story. And uh, so if you want to know more about how it happened in a company that was so iconic and so powerful, how they could fail, the story's there. And it's, and I, and I, and I tried to write it in a way that it, that, it's accessible to just about anybody that's, that's interested in what happened. And, uh, you know, most of the population that we're talking to has probably been in a blockbuster one time or another. And this is, and this is the story that's kind of under the hood of what happened. So it's incredible. 
Alan, thanks for being on the show today. You bet. Thanks a lot, Blake. Hey, for our listeners, if you want to find out more about this book, Built to Fail, the inside story of Blockbuster's inevitable bust, you can find it on Amazon. I'm also going to put a link down in the episode description below if you want to check it out directly. Uh, also, if you enjoyed this, this episode today, what the heck are you waiting on? Click that follow button so you can keep getting good advice wherever you are. And hey, don't forget, you can support the podcast via our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash good advice. You can even get your business promoted and advertised on the podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash good advice. Thanks so much for the support. We appreciate you and we'll catch you later. See ya.